My name is Dr. Nate Shannock. And my name is Merrick Egbert. This is the official podcast of the Else for Autism Foundation for Autism. We call our podcast this because it's a play on our foundation's name, and Merrick and I are both terrible golfers. Well, we love how golf has become such a transformative tool to helping people with autism. When I'm not on the podcast, I'm a member of our growing research team. And when I'm not part of the podcast, I'm an administrative assistant filling the gaps of each department like glue. I'm also autistic. This is our 26th episode of the podcast, Creative Arts Stimulating Mental Health, with special guests Andrew Blitman of our advisory board and Graziella Gadia, our RT Supreme. What we hope to do is to present news and updates about our foundation, interviews or feature stories that play a big role with us and with the community as a whole. Speaking of which, we also have our Today in the World of Autism segment, where a positive news and current events reflect the world we live in today. Also, check our show notes for websites, resources, and other groovy things we would like to have on the written record for all of you for autism fans. So here are some news and updates about the foundation. First of all, tune into episode 25 to listen to Dr. Carrie Magro and Jim Hogan, two of our board members, celebrate World Autism Month through talking about employer partnerships and proper representation of autistic voices. And listen to Julie Lobdell, our adult day training program coordinator, speak about the ADT program and our Sea of Possibilities microbusiness. After that interview is a small surprise of a commercial, especially made for Sea of Possibilities, produced by volunteer extraordinaire, Mr. Lorenz Nazaro. Make sure to also listen to the rest of the program to get an idea of what we were doing as a foundation during that time and learn something new about the autism community for our Today in the World of Autism segment. May is Mental Health Awareness Month. It is so important that we take this time to tell individuals with autism and comorbidities of mental health challenges that they are not alone and that we are there for them. Please be sure to refer to your, yourself or anybody who's currently struggling or suffering to our robust mental health curriculum. And because it is Mental Health Awareness Month, I wrote about how important it is to have a creative outlet and how everybody has some form of a creative outlet they can use to engage with others no matter where on the spectrum the person is. In my personal experiences, I write about how finding my creative outlet, creative writing was stimulated as a person with autism, but also as a person with mental health comorbidities like depression and anxiety. Make sure to keep yourself tuned onto our website and check our blog archives for this new one. It should be great. For the past seven years of working for the foundation, I'd always wanted to volunteer for one of our golf challenge events, which are our biggest annual fundraising events. What we do is we tour all over the U.S. and Canada for our teams participating in tournaments. We also run our game-owned golf clinics to teach individuals with autism the therapeutic nature of golf. Each team has a person with autism as a captain, and the team who has raised the most gets to go to the grand finale, which is in November, to meet Ernie and Liesl Els. On Monday, May 2nd, I was able to volunteer at the Beer Lakes Country Club in West Palm Beach, and it was a very cordial visit. Our registered participants helped with the inventory management, helped with the picture taking of our teams, and spoke at the event. It was a lot of fun and felt great to be there in a participatory form for one of our big cornerstones of the foundation. Soon after I finished the Golf Challenge event, I went up to Ponte Vedra for the Florida AFSI Statewide Conference. AFSI is an all-volunteer board consisting of people from relevant agencies, all looking to make a difference in making sure that people with disabilities get employed. AFSI stands for Association of, Pe of People Supporting Employment First. And our big thing each year is our conference. 
This time in collaboration with our Georgia brands, we ran our first conference solely devoted to our Employment First mission. Attendees would network, learn about initiatives and programs in the state, all to help the progression of individuals with disabilities seeking employment. Even if I am a board member, it was very eye-opening for me too. After spending four years as a member at large, I hope to participate in the national conference in June. And then after leaving the conference, I went to Way Key, located in Florida's armpit to the tiny town of Cedar Key to celebrate Mother's Day. While I got sick with the flu near the end, I really enjoyed my time walking, buying merchandise, and enjoying the local seafood and the famous hearts of palm salad. There's also the best clam chowder I ever had at Tony's, which is also in Mount Dora, Florida. Nate, how did you spend Mother's Day? Well, I'm very excited to answer this question, but first I just have to say, wow, Merrick, you had a busy month. Uh, congrats on um, accomplishing all of that. And, um, you know, we're, we're all happy to hear that you're, you're feeling better. And, you know, it's great to be uh, on the podcast again with you. So I want to start off by saying, you know, happy Mother's Day to all the great moms out there. Um, including Merrick's mom, Debbie, and uh, my mom, Yvonne. So for this Mother's Day, we, we stuck with tradition, essentially. We don't usually brave the Mother's Day brunch crowd, but instead um, we did, uh, I, my wife and I went to my parents' house and um, my sisters were there as well. And we uh, did a nice barbecue a little bit of time in the pool, and then, um, you know, played some of my mom's favorite games, uh, like Cards Against Humanity. Um, what's the new one she likes? Pick uh, the one where you draw pictures, uh, Telestrations, it's called. So we had a lot of fun and, um, you know, uh, just happy to, to celebrate my mom on that day. Wow. Um, I thought that uh, that sounds like a July 4th picnic. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of how we celebrate all the big days. Uh, you have a barbecue and then you play a bunch of different games. Um, I tried playing telestrations once. I just got telefrustrated. <laughs> oh, man, that's that's good. Yeah. At one point, um, my, my, uh, instruction was to draw a peacock and, uh, one of my sisters guessed that it was, um, an alien invader. So that, that tells you about my artistic skills. Oh, believe me, uh, for the social group that we have this spoken wheel society, Whenever we play Pictionary and I'm drawing all the pictures, that's usually time to riff Merrick, the riffing Merrick time, <laughs> because I cannot draw Worf uh, Jack. All right. Well, clearly you and I have to get together and play this game sometime. We'll have, you know, survival of the fittest. <laughs> yeah. Call it abstract art if you want to, or avant-garde. <laughs> Yeah, maybe we'll get uh, Andrew Blitman to play also so he can just smoke us. Yeah, I'm sure that Andrew and Graziella will both beat us at the whole thing. 
All right. So um, the last uh, thing I would like to say is um, we finished our winter spring programs with gusto. A few days ago, we had our interability course perform for a large audience. We had our other programs done with cheers and smiles. Our summer recreational programming will begin in July for our summer camp, which runs from Tuesday, July 5th to Friday, July 29th. More details will follow next month. Please be sure to check our website for our upcoming fall rec programs. And we'll have our interviews very soon. Okay, everyone, I would like to welcome the first special guest of our podcast episode, and her name is Grazi Corbellini Gadia, who was born in Porto Alegre, Brazil, and spent almost 20 years there working in advertising agencies managing their customers. While working there, she started having ambitions of becoming a psychologist to help people especially those with special needs and of finding a better platform for her art. In 2007, she moved to Western Florida and married Dr. Carlos Gadia, a neuropediatrician who specializes in autism. Her marriage has enabled her to connect with families of autistic children and also to build a better career based on her artwork. The years from 2014 to 2016 were very constructive for her where she had several art exhibitions for Art Brazil in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, exhibited her artwork in her hometown of Porto Alegre, Brazil, and created all the beautiful works of art our visitors see whenever they arrive on our campus. Her current project is Eye Contact with Autism, Live Shaped by Autism, which is invigorated by her passion for the autism community. Welcome to the program, Graziella Gadia. Thank you, thank you. Uh, first of all, thank you and to the Yale Center for inviting me to talk in this podcast about of the importance of arts in the life of any individual, whether typical or atypical. And second, I would like to thank, uh, thank Ari and Marlene for the opportunity they gave to me to paint the murals at the arts and music rooms of this amazing center. It was an honor for me. Thank you for being here. You're very, very welcome. Uh, on behalf of the Els for Autism Foundation, you're very, very welcome. Thank you. <clears throat> yes, Graziella, it's great to have you here speaking with us this evening. So I wanted to, to start the questions off by asking you a little bit about the link between mindfulness and specific mindfulness and meditation with creativity. Um, it's something that I've studied. Um, I studied in graduate school and your artwork is clear evidence that you have some creativity. So could you, mm -hmm. um, could you tell us a little bit about this and um, whether you engage in this practice and then what other practices would you recommend to help people feeling more creative and inspired? Um, you know, I do not have any experience in using mindfulness and creativity, but I have the experience with myself. Sometimes uh, I practice this when I am a little bit stressed 
you know, and I think it's a very good practice. Okay, probably for creativity, probably is a very good practice too, you know, but um, completing my answer, what I lose a, a lot to get inspired and inspired my students sometimes is to bring some music uh, to the classes that I give to them, to inspirate them, you know. And depending on each student uh, and depending on their hyper focus, you know, um, the class uh, takes some uh, path uh, depending on their taste about art. You know, sometimes uh, I have students that have the hyper focus in birds. So I try to, to get for them some references about birds or sometimes I get some famous painter, painters that paints birds to give them uh, inspiration. That's my experience. Yeah, that's a terrific idea. And definitely music is another practice that can really stir up some creativity. Very interesting. So one of your key miss missions is to help individuals with autism to have a platform where they can tell their story. Why do you think this is so important for psychological well-being? Yes, I have to, to talk a little bit about my mission. Okay, uh, my mission is uh, to motivate the individuals with autism to make arts, because I believe that art transforms their lives and art is inclusion, okay? I have been promoting more than three festivals of art for individuals under the spectrum. And uh, it's, it all focuses on Brazilian community and all uh, the participants, uh, they are, um, they don't have a lot of money, you understand? They are low income and it always a success. You know, they love to participate and to receive the awards. Some of my students uh, and the winners of my festival, they are selling their artwork after the festival. Uh, selling their artwork, they feel empowered because they earn their own money and they can, they can collaborate with their family. Uh, to complete this answer, uh, I think that arts give them more confidence, they socialize more, and they achieve more out control, you know? Mm -hmm. And what happened that in Brazil, uh, we love uh, social media. And I have some students that they weren't um, very adjusted to appear in social media. And they were motivated to show up their arts and then they start to sell more and more and more their artworks. So for me, art is inclusion, not either um, uh, with their families, but with the society and the, and the work market. Yeah, thank you for that excellent answer. It sounds like mm -hmm. it's something that can help a person achieve some self-autonomy and 
definitely some some overall positive feelings about um, their work and and their self esteem to create these uh, you know these uh, yeah. pieces of art that everyone can enjoy. Yeah. Okay, so lastly, what are the benefits of art therapy on mental health for individuals with autism, as well as the general population for neurotypical individuals? Actually, I, I think that uh, there is, uh, the benefits of the arts is for me based on one premise, okay? Uh, there is no right or wrong in arts. Everything is possible in arts. Since this premise, these students are able to make their artwork in their own way. Even though we give them the steps and the starting points, nah, my experience is teaching art is amazing because they can see they develop their skills, not only in arts, but emotional skill as well like self-esteem, confidence, eye contact, social interaction, creativity, and independence. And it's important to point out that they achieve those skills in a light and fun way without stress. Yeah, that's so well said. Uh, thank you for that. It's always great to have these activities that bring people together and where um, people from maybe different backgrounds can find common interests and whether it's art or music or sports, you know, it's exactly. regardless uh, of what it is, but as long as something is, is serving as that bridge. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you. I'll turn it over to you now, Merrick. All right. Thank you so much. Um, so I would like to um, ask, um, well, my first question is, there has been a link between therapy and the creative arts. Have you found your paintings to have a therapeutic influence on you? Yes, there is a link between therapy and creative arts, Merrick. Why? Uh, because I have learned, I'm gonna repeat, uh, that in art, there is not uh, no right or wrong. Everything is possible. So uh, I feel free and comfortable to express my feelings and dreams on a canvas or in a piece of paper or in a wall. That's why my paintings help me a lot in all periods of my life. Art helps anyone to relax the mind because it has the power to step away from the borders of our small everyday world. Since I was a child, the arts and sports were always part of my routine at home or at school. I used to do crochet with my grandma. I used to cook with my grandma, taking art courses at school and playing volleyball. Uh, all of those activities helped me to grow up with more discipline and at the same time with more flexibility, you understand? It's, uh, it's very good because at the same time that we need discipline in life, you need uh, to be more 
flexible in another times, yeah. And uh, with those activities, you know, I feel included. I feel accepted by my colleagues in, in, a, in, a, in a phase of life that's not easy, that was the teenager age. Uh, I always say that arts and sports are 50% of my way of facing life. They shape it my identity and helping me build up my self-esteem in all moments of my life. My paintings are the result of my experience. They represent the gratitude that I have for everything I have received for so far. To give an example, art was what helped me rescue my identity as an immigrant in USA. I moved from Brazil uh, to the USA 15 years ago at the age of 45. I left in Brazil everything, my family, my friends, my roots, and my job. Actually, I left there my identity. Do you understand it? <laughs> at 45 years old. Arts uh, associate with my social project, I contact life shaped by autism that has the mission to embrace resilience mamas uh, with kids under the spectrum has helped me to bring back the real Grazi. My social project within this frame of arts gave me much more resilience confidence and joy to write this new and challenging chapter of my life in the US. Mezzo Brazilian, Mezzo American. <laughs> Just to finish, the most important thing that art brought me was a life purpose. This is priceless because nowadays I can make art and still be able to help other people, especially people under the spectrum to make art and be included in society in the, in, in the marketplace. Uh, art, art is all different types activate brain networks that are different from the ones related to speech and, and language or a simple appreciation of sounds, colors and shapes. This may allow people to improve their communication and social interaction abilities. This is my answer for your first question, Maverick. Well, thank you so much for such an in-depth look. And uh, I can definitely tell that the passion for the subject runs through you quite well. Um, so my second question is, what has been so far your favorite piece on our campus? <laughs> it's a very difficult uh, question, very difficult to choose just one piece of art within the L Center, especially because the L Center itself is a masterpiece of art for the ASD community in the world. But if I had to make a choice, the first place would go, the, the first place would go to the sensory garden. Why? 
because it's a living piece of art. It has naturally all the five senses we need to feel in peace. You can smell, you are able to see the beauty of the plants, flowers, you can touch and taste. This is the most complete piece of art and it is outdoors. So you can admire the sun, the sky, the moon, the water and stars. For me, it's poetic. I love it. It has definitely such a calming effect on anyone who, who is there. Um, and it's uh, just a great, great place. Yeah, you just relax, you set aside all your worriments and your anxieties, and you just basically you refresh your day just by being in the sensory arts garden. Yes, and you can get inspiration there too. (laughs) It's incredible. I love it. I love this place. And what do you think about the um? What do we call it? The wonder wall or that uh, wall that we have with the water? I love it. I love it. Yeah. All right. Um, so not to take up too much of your time, um, I'll just I'll ask you my last question, um, because I think that it's uh, very important Um even if someone doesn't consider themselves a creative, mm-hmm. why is it still important that they keep a creative spirit to their lives? Yeah, this is a very important question. I would say that everybody has some creative spirit, in my opinion. Sometimes people are not in an environment that motivates you to be creative. But I want to reinforce creativity is practice. That's why I wouldn't motivate a person that thinks she or he is not creative to exercise creativity. You can practice anywhere in your house, decoration, cooking, gardening, drawing, painting, playing, dancing, singing, you know. The most important thing is not to be afraid to think in a different way out of the box. It's very important to keep a creative spirit because it expands your opportunities in all fields of your life. Creative spirits sometimes helps you to connect with everyone around you. They may actually feel surprised by discovering abilities they never knew you could have. Everybody has some creativity. Creativity is always around us. My professional experience taught me how to improve my creativity. It is like to play a guitar. If you practice every day, you will learn to play. So if you practice creativity every day, you will become a more creative person. I would say it is important to reach the creativity because it opens your minds to see another good sides of life or a problem. For example, if you have an issue in your daily routine, use your creative spirit. It could be so without lots of stress. 
um, that's my, uh, no, there is another thing here. And uh, creativity helps you to be more flexible and face the life with lots of joy and fun. That's my answer, Merrick. That sounds a little bit like uh, the blog article I wrote, you know, how everyone, yeah. no matter who it is, even if the person just can say their names out loud, that's still an expression of creativity. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, when I used to work in Brazil in the advertisement um, field, uh, we had some meetings that we just exercise uh, a brainstorm. You know, everybody were free to say something about the one product. And this, that's the moment that you have to be free. You have to be not afraid to say what you were thinking. So to be creative, you should have freedom to think. You should be open open your mind so things are going to happen yeah and 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 to also be you know fearless mm -hmm. of who you are what you are it doesn't really matter you <laughs> also should be fearless in your expression of creative uh need and interest yeah i i remember when i went to my first class in my art course, I was afraid to, to paint the blank canvas. I had a blank canvas in front of me and I have the brushes, the colors, and I was afraid. And my teacher was amazing because she said, Grazi, there is no rules in art. Go ahead and make whatever you want. Uh, there was a orange and some bottles of wine that we have to copy. And I was afraid. And th that's why I am saying for everybody, don't be afraid, go and make it, go and paint, you know, and uh, because you are going to have lots of fun. And I really improve my life with arts and sports. I am a sports fan too. I love to play tennis. Nowadays I play tennis and I uh, am an artist and I am a teacher of arts and I promote some events about arts, festival of arts for kids under the spectrum. And uh, I'm so happy with this purpose, this meaning that I have in my life. A woman of all trades. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, before we go, is there anything you would like to promote or to, you know, anything you would like to say before we go? No. Um, yes. I would like to tell you <laughs> that uh, last year uh, I promoted a art week in Miami where we made a photo show. Uh, we 
the the kids with autism they painted they painted the the face of their mamas like the the face of their mamas were a canvas okay and this was amazing because i could connect the arts with the children and the mama and it was incredible because the result was uh, lots of fun the mamas love it the kids uh, adore it because they never thought they could paint the faces of their mamas the pictures were amazing and uh, we could see how arts connect um, mothers and kids under the spectrum. We could see how their eye contact improve and how, uh, how they socialize because we, we made meetings of more than five mamas and kids, you know. So this year in Rio de Janeiro, we repeat the exhibition and it was amazing because we had more than 30 pictures of mamas painted by their kids. And it was in one of the most traditional hotels in Rio de Janeiro, the Copacabana Palace. So I'm so happy. I'm so uh, happy, fulfilled because uh, everybody loves it. Everybody's feel how arts can help people, how arts includes people, how arts can transform lives. Yeah, it certainly, um, <clears throat> sorry, it certainly helps a lot that, you know, um, many, many individuals with autism are known to be visual learners. So putting them into that visual space allows them a greater connection to the people around them. So I think that that's actually a very, very helpful way of connecting the children and their mothers. Yes. Very, very helpful. And uh, uh, the other thing that I, that I feel is that we, we show the protagonism of the mothers because when we photograph uh, we take the pictures of them, they feel that they are a model. You understand? Yep. Uh, the, it was amazing to see how they like to be photographed, uh, to take those pictures. I'm sorry, my English sometimes is so poor. No, <laughs> no, no, your English is fantastic. And if you, if you give me the opportunity, I want to, to talk about a student that I have, that I met, in a social media during the pandemic, okay, when we are completely isolated, uh, we found out each other by the Instagram, and then we start to relate painting after, in the afternoons, you know, and she almost didn't look in my eyes through. We used to paint together, but through virtually, you know, through Instagram. And she almost could uh, look in my eyes and she have a hyper, hyper focus in rainbows, you know. And then today, uh, she is my student, you know, in arts. Today, she was hired by a 
brand of clothes for kids. She was hired to make uh, t-shirts for another platform. And she is my, uh, how can I say, she helped me in my courses of arts for autistic kids. So in two years, Jessica, you know, Jessica grew up through the arts. I think it's good to finish like that because it's an example, you know, she lives in a very, very poor region in Brazil. And now she earns her own money and she can help her family. You understand? It's beautiful. It's amazing. You know. What an inspiring story. Yeah, mm -hmm. definitely. Well, yeah. thank you so much for being uh, our guest, one of our guests on this uh, podcast episode. Uh, with your extremely inspirational stories and your uh, inspirational example too. Okay, thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, so our next special guest is Mr. Andrew Blitman who earned his degree in marine conservation science and policy from the University of Miami and is a local from South Florida who served on the UMNSU Center for Autism and Related Disabilities Constituency Board from 2011 to 2017. He currently works as a tutor and mentor for firewall centers. He's the author of many books, one comprehensive poetry anthology, three illustrated poetry books written and drawn from the perspective of animals, and a memoir about his December 2012 birthright trip to Israel. He is also a prolific artist who has had his artwork displayed all over South Florida, and he is a very valuable member of our advisory board. To read his works and look at his paintings, you can visit his website, which I will have in the show notes. Welcome to the program, Andrew Blitman. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us, Andrew. We're, we're very excited to speak to you. And I'd like to, to start the questions off um, in this way. So first, when I was going through um, some of your artwork, I have to say I was extremely impressed and, and moved by a lot of it. But it seemed to be that there were um, some philosophical and, and religious themes to, to your work, including your your essays and poems. So I wanted to ask you, um, do you feel that creating art can help with spiritual or psychological growth? And are you inspired by any philosophers? Well, the answer to both of those questions is yes. <laughs> like there's, uh, there's a, you can do a lot with art to, to make it a philosophical. And uh, as far as um, art is concerned, can and especially poetry, it can help you um, kind of understand yourself as you process it. And so the, my uh, biggest influences as far as philosophers are concerned are Plato, Voltaire, Viktor Frankl, Machiavelli, and Friedrich Nietzsche. Although I have to admit for Friedrich Nietzsche, I have a love-hate relationship with his philosophy. <laughs> and also, but also the Torah and the Bible have been influences on me. And creating art is cathartic and it helps you work through difficult feelings and transform them into beautiful things and turn sorrow into joy. 
It's also a laborious endeavor, and that creates a sense of accomplishment and pride whenever a project is completed. And for me, creating art helped me understand, helped me understand myself better. And that creativity, and especially poetry, helped me work through what I believe, finding my religion, finding my philosophy, and everything in between. And it helped, and just the creative process itself felt like meditation in a way. But the most important thing about art, too, is it also combats boredom. And it always leads to new things. Yeah, thank you for that very insightful answer. I was kind of hoping you would cite Viktor Frankl as one of your uh, favorite philosophers. He also uh, is is probably my favorite, actually. Um, it's such he his uh, Man's Search for Meaning book was so um, impactful on you know modern psychology and the lives of so many people. So very cool. Um, so also what was wondering, what advice would you give to young artists, writers, and poets that are looking to really strengthen their craft? Well, I have a, good, a lot of answers to help. The first, of, the, first, the first thing you can do is experiment. You need to find your medium, your preferred subject matter or theme, and then track down the relevant art supplies of choice. It takes lots of practice, editing and proofreading, if you have an idea, I recommend writing it down or finding some other way to remember it before you lose it or forget it. And if you're going to visual art, especially stock up on canvas and panels so you don't run out of, uh, of materials to practice with. And if you're doing the written work, carry a notebook and pencils everywhere you go. It helps you make, helps you catch an idea for a poem or if you wanna sketch something on the street to help you make a painting. Another important thing this is something I'm learning too, is that to take breaks in between endeavors, especially if you're doing a series of projects that are all related at the exact same time, like a series. Read and educate yourself often. YouTube is a great resource, especially for, for creative people looking for inspiration. You can find everything on YouTube. And one of my most important influences, especially developed my art over the past couple of years with the pandemic and everything, is the joy of painting with Bob Ross. All the episodes of his TV show are available for free on YouTube. And I learned a lot of techniques in oil and watercolor color that also applied to acrylic, my medium. And he's been a major influence, especially for learning art techniques. And one of my favorite episodes is where he talks about how to create ocean waves. But if you're looking at, um, for to practice on canvases and panels, buy them in bulk so you can save money in the long run. Plus a lot of art supply stores have membership programs that will help you save even more money on art resources. And also for poets, you can find networking opportunities by going to open mic nights or poetry slams in your area. You can meet other poets or read your poems before a live audience or record your spoken poems on SoundCloud. You can record them and create a, an album of sorts on SoundCloud. Uh, doing so will help you improve your public speaking skills and help you build your reputation in the field as well. Practice, practice, practice makes perfect, I say. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to backtrack just for a second. You mentioned the, the pandemic, and um, I know that a lot of artists and musicians have found inspiration uh, from the pandemic and maybe some of the, the solidarity or I'm sorry, the solitude that occurred during that time. Did you did you feel like um, 
you had a, a rush of creativity while that was occurring or? Oh yeah, it's been yeah. constant. Since I started painting again back in 20, I guess 2019, I've been getting more and more prolific as the time goes by. But then also shows too, like you can, you can teach yourself new things. Like we were talking about like plasticity or elasticity of the mind. Like once you find something that you like and adapt to it, you can do so much with it. You can run, take a premise and run with it until you're satisfied. Or, you know, you find a new way to express yourself. Absolutely. So uh, lastly, I wanted to ask, are there any works that you have just completed or that you're currently putting the finishing touches on that you're particularly excited about and um, want to talk about with our listeners? Well, actually, yes, I do. I have a new book on the way titled The Blue Book of Poetry and Life, which contains over 400 new and not yet published poems and short stories. Many are philosophical in nature or pertain to the color blue itself, and also some of the books I've been reading over, over the break. Some of the topics could be controversial, though, uh, so I'm still in the process of proofreading, determining what to keep and what to remove from the finished product to keep it fresh. But in this book, I try poetry and styles that are new to me, like pantoums. I also include new short stories. But my goal for this book is to release it before the end of 2022, or at the latest, the beginning of 2023. Wow, that is exciting. And you can count me as a, an individual that's very excited to, to read that whenever it does come It'll out. It'll be on Amazon for sure. Oh, terrific. Yeah, well, thanks, Andrew. I'm going to pass it along to Merrick now for his questions. Thank you for your questions, Nate. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> also being uh, involved in the creative arts, um, I would like to say, um, you know, uh, an advice that I would give to anyone is find something you're passionate about and write about that. You think that that's good advice? Yeah, I think that is. And also try to find like-minded people. That's another thing that's a, that, can, that can help you a lot in general. All right. That's all definitely great advice. Um, so um, when and why did you first start getting involved in the creative arts? Well, I'll give you a little bit of a, a, a sneak peek. I started doing art in elementary school, kindergarten. I won honorable mention at the Broward County Science Fair when I was in second grade in my category, seven years old. And I won first place for a pastel project based on Picasso's Cubist style in, Broward, in the Broward County Fair when I was 14 in ninth grade. And let's see. I have also loved drawing. And, I, and I've always been drawing. In high school, I got into poetry, though, and I actually won honorable mention in the haiku contest during my senior year. The poetry bug, however, really got me in college, and that's what led me to blogging and eventually to writing my first book, and then to writing many more books of poetry in the years since then. In college, I took a drawing class during my freshman year. That was the last formal art class I have officially taken. Art is cathartic and fun, and I also enjoy making art as gifts for family and friends, and that's been a major motivation. In 2019, my grandma commissioned me to make some paintings for her. And after that, and during the pandemic, 
years early, I decided to make paintings for all of my other family members. Then I started making some for myself, and this renewed my interest in art, which is still growing strong. And I have since been extremely prolific and produced many, many more pieces of art, some of which are hanging in the L Center Pavilion Gallery to this day. Neat. That's uh, definitely quite a history you've got there. So how have your paintings and poetry allowed you expression that anything else cannot do? Well, poetry helped me first with my conversational and public speaking skills. It laid the foundation for my painting career. It also taught me how to market myself and how to create websites, books, and other social media profiles like WordPress, Instagram, Amazon Kindle Publishing, SoundCloud, allpoetry.com, and Fine Art America. It pushed me to socialize and to improve my communication skills, allowed me to probe and investigate my philosophical, religious, and political beliefs, and express them into words. It also helped me with my vocabulary and social cues, and then my paintings, which I illustrated almost all of my books to some degree. It helped me to express myself verbally too, by helping me organize my thoughts in conversation and how to properly use etiquette. But painting is also my favorite type of art as of now. It's helped me improve my memory and helped me with my organizing my thoughts in the creative process. It's also given me new ways to communicate with people and even to write and given me an additional source of income and another emotional outlet and new ways to affirm and help the people I love and those around me. So what you're basically saying is that um, your paintings, your artwork, and your poetry has really, really allowed you to develop as an individual with autism in this world today. Exactly. And there's no such thing as wasted progress. Any growth you make in one area, you can eventually find some use for it in another. And if things have a way of overlapping, I've noticed. Fantastic. Um, the last question I have to ask is, there are a large amount of individuals with autism who suffer from mental health problems. Would finding a creative outlet be helpful to them? Yes, I agree 100%. It's a difficult process at first, and that takes a lot of practice and discipline and resources and time. But once you find your niche and your style or medium of choice, it gets easier. However, not all people like to be creative. So I recommend that you listen to yourself and your own needs and interests before you pour your entire self into art, especially impulsively. There are also other forms of art like dancing and acting and music, like, like the music you do, Merrick, so you don't have to limit yourself or commit to only visual art. I also believe too that progress is logarithmic. I believe it takes 10 times the effort to go up two levels than to go up only one, basically. To get up the ladder, it takes 10 times more effort to get to a, high, a higher level of mastery. And I, I've noticed that it's either logarithmic or exponential the way I, uh, productivity has shown me. But also, although depression and other mental diet health diagnoses can sometimes help creativity and growth in the short term, I strongly urge people to take breaks in between projects and during streaks of productivity. You can get so obsessed with the negative emotions that they could devour your time and energy and even derail you psychologically. It can open doors that are difficult to close. If mania is serious, and although art can supplement your mental health, it is not a replacement for medication or therapy. So if you need help, in the especially with, with mental health, seek help to avoid getting overwhelmed by stress and the exhausting nature of creativity in general.
Yeah, that that sounds perfectly um, logical and reasonable. Um, you know, finding that balance and making sure that you know your passion is a great helper by your side, but it doesn't devour you completely. Exactly. Andrew, so. I, I have a quick follow-up question to that. So now that you're, um, you know, you're, you're translating one of your great passions of, of art and writing into, you know, something professional, um, so I know some people have said that, that that can lead to them losing some, some love or intrinsic motivation um, for, for that activity. So, so are you saying that you know, a, a major key to, to maintaining the love for the activity is taking breaks and not letting it be you know, your entire life? Well, it could be your entire life, but you have to find a, the right, right way to approach it. Because if it becomes an obsession, you don't take care of yourself, it's only going to lead to ruin. So um, as far as that is concerned, taking breaks in between series is good. Because if you get overwhelmed, you might not be able to compete, you know, with, with the demand of people. And also you might just exhaust yourself and, you, you, and put you in an uncomfortable position. Got it. That makes sense. So before we go, um, do you want to uh, promote anything or what is it that you would want to leave our listeners on? Well, I just say, have fun creating and listen to yourself. And also, um, it's so you don't have to be perfect. It's all, a pra- all practice and it's all education and it's all supposed to be fun in the end. So if you, you, you have to find what you want and you find and enjoy it, but try not to exhaust it too. So moderation is important. Moderation and sharing your work with the world. What a fine uh, message to leave us on. So thank you so much, Andrew Blitman, for um, being our... Um, second special guest of this podcast episode and for your uh, excellent answers to our questions. It was a real honor to be interviewed. I really can't underscore it enough. It's really an honor to work with you. It was a great pleasure meeting you, Andrew, and your answers were excellent. Um, that That was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you. As always, it is time to go over Today in the World of Autism, starting with my co-host, Dr. Nate Chinock, and his fantastic research-oriented stories. Okay, let's stir it up. I wanted to begin by presenting some highlights from an excellently written and vitally important story that was covered in the online publication Spectrum, and the article was written by Laura DeTaro. So two months ago, a two-story peach-colored building with a playground housed a kindergarten for 30 autistic children in Kiev, Ukraine. But since Russia attacked the country on February 24th, 
The structure has served instead as a shelter with the families who once received therapy and an education there, as well as some of the therapists now taking advantage of its secure basement, kitchen and food storage. All autism related services, save for a few online sessions have been seated. There are many autism professionals scrambling to address the needs of Ukrainian autistic people whose lives have been upended. Across Europe and elsewhere, many have opened up their schools, connected families with the therapists who speak Ukrainian, and collected medications and autism-friendly toys. The task they face is enormous, as approximately 5 million people have left Ukraine since the war started including 4.3 million children per the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, the UN Refugee Agency. Autistic people and their families fleeing the war need the basics, at least, food, water, shelter, and safety. But they often have additional needs that can be difficult to find under the best of circumstances, let alone during a crisis like the war taking place. Many people with autism prefer to follow strict routines, experience high levels of anxiety, and are especially in tune to their parents' levels of distress. These factors are likely intensifying the negative emotional effect experienced by these individuals, leading to increased possibility of trauma and post-traumatic stress. Katarzyna Towarska, a professor at Yale University, who we've spoken about on this podcast before as she has conducted exceptional research on the early developmental patterns of autism, including neural markers. Anyways, she has issued a call for aid through the International Society for Autism Research, a link that you can find in our show notes. Dr. Chwarska has been coordinating with colleagues at the University of Rezau in Poland about 400 miles from the Ukrainian border to assist families crossing into the country. Autistic children's routines now include learning safety measures, such as how to respond to an air raid siren, how to go to the basement, and how to tape up windows to prevent flying broken glass. As difficult and saddening as the situation is, and as challenging as the road ahead will be, I have to say that I'm still awestruck and very moved by the tremendous response to the situation that is apparent from professionals, researchers, and advocates in the autism community. As usual, it's a very tight-knit community. And as someone that did not grow up being a part of that community, I'm always incredibly impressed just by how tight-knit it is and the support that people provide each other. It's, it's pretty inspirational. So Merrick, um, I want to ask you, what are some of the measures that the Els for Autism Foundation has taken to assist the displaced families in Ukraine? Well, I'm glad that you asked this question, Nate. What we have done is create a series of visual modeling tools that attempt to help families who need resources for their children with autism while also educating and comforting the children who are afraid and upset of being in the middle of this invasion by Russia in, in English, Ukrainian, and Russian. Other visual modeling tools are meant to be sensitive 
to the physiological needs of the children with autism and their families too. Our clinical team has been hard at work at preparing these materials to help out those displaced by the invasion. Our executive director, Dr. Marlene Sotelo, has also been hard at work collecting necessary information to support families of individuals with autism in Ukraine. Those visual models, along with consultation and counseling, have been offered for free to these families, and she has found a few volunteer translators that speak Ukrainian or Russian. She was also permitted to join a Ukrainian Autism Family Support Group on Facebook that has given her access to resources, including an online helpline and an address to send necessary medications to those in need. The families themselves are also important as beneficiaries of our free services too. Wow, that is incredible work. Thank you, Dr. Sotelo and the rest of the staff. It's um, amazing work and not surprised to hear the Ells for Autism Foundation having a very quick and impactful response to the situation. So I'd like to now shift gears a little bit with my second story. We've talked a lot on the podcast about timing of diagnosis and how early diagnosis can lead to earlier intervention and more positive developmental trajectories. Interestingly, there was research published last week from Kristen Gillespie Lynch and colleagues at the College of Staten Island on the perceptions of individuals with autism relating to how and when they found out about their diagnoses. In summary, the investigators found that telling kids when they are younger helped them feel better about their lives as they grew up. So they looked at a sequence of psychological outcomes like self-esteem, autonomy, self-image, and many others. And that was how they, they found that these children felt better about their lives as they grew up. There was a negative correlation between age of finding out and positive perceptions later on, meaning that the later age that a child um, found out about their diagnosis or was told about it, um, that was related to um, that was related to uh, more negative perceptions later on. Learning that one is autistic at a younger age can aid better self-understanding as well as access to support, which in turn lays a foundation for well-being as an adult. That was a quote by one of the lead authors of the study, Tomazin Oredipi. The team also concluded that the way a diagnosis was disclosed was just as important, um, had just as much statistical weight in this study as when the diagnosis was revealed. Based on survey responses from the participants, they recommended talking about a child's strengths as well as their challenges in a language that is digestible. Parents can say things like, when talking about autism, that a child learns differently or that their brain is unique or is functioning a little bit um, differently from peers. How do you know when the time is right? It may be time if and when your child starts asking questions like, why do I have a special speech teacher or a helper in school? 
So Merrick, I wanted to, to give you a, a chance here and um, we'd greatly appreciate it uh, to speak a little more about your experience and specifically, how did you find out about your diagnosis? And secondly, if you were to make a recommendation, at what age would it be good or ideal to speak to a child about this? Well, it's interesting to talk about because um, I did have exposure to um, the special uh, needs community from a very, very early age. But the problem is, is that my memory of my very early days is extremely murky. So really, I feel like my memory started existing a while after I had any exposure to anything related to uh, special needs or related to autism. So when I was, um, when I was, I guess you could say like um, moving into the third grade, um, I pretty much all my life, um, after a certain moment of time, I was just basically going to places, going to classes, um, going to like daycare centers, doing all this stuff, but it never felt like it had to do with a condition or a disability. When I was like younger, um, I had to get into the van to go to the JCC uh, for their aftercare program. Now, I was bullied at the time in their aftercare program, but it never, it never made me think that it was because I had something different about me. If anything felt different about me at the time, I thought of myself as weird, eccentric, um, you know, just an odd kid. Um, uh when I was uh, in the third grade in elementary school um, and a little bit on, um, I had a little bit of a harder time with my motor skills and my arms were a little bit droopier. Um, I, I have talked about this before about having no personal boundaries. Um, my, um, my speech was different. Um, there was even a time in high school when my writing was a lot more legible, um, which sometimes, you know, that's not too uncommon for individuals with autism to have. Um, I think that it was kind of difficult to um, understand that I had something that had a name to it especially because much of what I had dealt with involved motor skills. Um, but when I was, um, when I was in high school, near the end, um, there were some hints, some flavors, um, even in the 10th grade, a therapist wanted to talk to me about it. Um, I ended up answering a phone 
in a hotel room and it basically said to speak to me the, the person wanted to speak about either uh wanted to speak to me or to the family of what she said was a kid was like special needs or a condition or whatever and i i really wasn't um interested in that because i didn't want to feel like i had something that i guess was holding me back um but after i graduated from high school um there was one prerequisite that i had to do in order to go to college and that was to enroll in an independent living program so a car ride um with my parents and i and it was my mother because my father is usually very uh when he's driving and the like he usually doesn't say much of anything but my mother really wanted to uh address the issue with me and so she started bringing up um you know she started saying that i had asperger's she didn't use the word autism she said that i had asperger's syndrome and at the time, um, as I will always say, uh, I felt frightened because every single thing I tried to do, even if I failed miserably at it, was to try to make sure that I was able to find my place in the world. I really wanted to have a girlfriend when I was growing up. I, uh, I guess I wanted to have, you know, a set of friends. I wanted, I wanted the kind of life that I felt was typical, was normal, even with my difficulties and even with my problems and challenges, I really wanted that. And when I was told that, um, it was very difficult for me to think about it. Um, I remember, I think it was uh, the first Incredible Hulk film, because I remember I graduated from high school in 2004. And um, I think that the first Incredible Hulk film was still playing in theaters. It was either that or the X-Men. And I remember um, my mother was talking about something called Little Professors. And making it sound like Asperger's wasn't just, you know, like any other disability or condition. That you may have difficulties, but you have some very uh, strong elements in other areas that almost made me feel like that when I would watch something like the X-Men, that I could relate to the characters in the movies as like a mutant. And I think that that helped me sort of feel a little bit more um, used to it. But don't get me wrong, though. Um, for years and years, even like a few, even like a few months ago or, or the like, I would say that I was diagnosed because I guess even to admit it now, um, I, I, I like to think that it makes you feel comfortable to address it, but I still feel very um, at odds to completely accept it as, you know, a part of me because, you know, if I didn't have this in my life, 
who would I be and what would I be? Uh, you know, would I still be Merrick Egber or would I be, you know, Merrick Egber with Asperger's or the Asperger kid? And, uh, you know, if I was born without it, would, would I still have the same life? And so it, there's still kind of, uh, even if I try to admit sometimes that I've fully accepted it, um, there's always a little bit of attention still there. But because I've been working for the foundation and because I've learned a lot about what my condition is like and about other people who I've met who have the same condition that I do, maybe it's just not as difficult to feel, you know, isolated in terms of what my condition is and to know that there are really, really interesting people out there with the same condition that I have makes it kind of easier to feel like that that's not something that's preventing me from doing things, but rather just something that makes me feel different. And I do believe that saying things like you learn differently or your brain is different and unique are very good things to say. Uh, you don't want to tell a child that they are limited or that they are slower or that they are, you know, uh, unintelligent or anything like that. You, you basically, you know, every single condition does not mean that someone has, you know, no value anymore because of it. Uh, everyone has some sort of value and everyone has some sort of strength, no matter what it is, that helps them through the days and the lives that they live in. And I think that people should uh, possibly accept that. And I just, I think that it would have been interesting if I was born and raised in a different time. Like if I was born and raised in the late nineties or mid nineties, how everything would be so different. But I think I'm also fortunate to have been born and raised at the time I was. Um, I think in regards to age, um, I think it's like learning a foreign language. Um, when you're a child, um, the earlier you learn a foreign language, the more fluent you can probably be. Because to you, that is the world you accept. That is the world you acknowledge and that is the world you know. If you wait for such a long time to tell the child, if the child has autism, that they have autism, then the world that they've created so carefully for years and years may feel like a sandcastle that's been drifted away from this by the sea. Um, we've talked a lot, of course, about early intervention services and the like. Um, and it's just very, very important because, you know, even if the symptoms may regress or they may progress or whatever it is, there's still that part of the identity that the person can say and go, you know what, if anything changes about me regarding this, or if I'm a part of this, then this makes me feel like I'm part of a greater community or I'm part of a greater whole because to them, that is what they acknowledge, that's what they know, and that is what they understand. And they don't see it as being a bad thing, 
because they've lived with it for so long and because that is an integral part of their identity. To flip it over and make it a part of someone's identity when they're a lot older gives someone a kind of an identity crisis. So I think that the earlier it is, and if the child understands it, at the earliest the child can understand it, I think it's probably the best time to talk about it, but to talk about it in a way that is compassionate, that is, um, you know, heartwarming, and that does not make the child feel like they're anything less than they are or that they're anything lesser than they are. There's a title of a Dr. Temple Grandin book that says different, not less. And that is something that is very important or else what you will find is the person with the condition, whether they are acknowledging it or not, may fall under the delusion that they are lesser people, even if they really aren't. And even if their brain isn't of a lesser kind or of a lesser being. And so you don't want to even create a placebo effect or a delusion in someone. So that, that's kind of my thought on the whole thing. Well, uh, thank you, Merrick. It was just really excellently said and um, so many good, good points, um, you know, about the difficulties of the identity development and then how that's influenced by the timing of, of a diagnosis like that. But I really, um, I have to say, I'm a big fan of the positive psychology movement in general. And um, that's basically to, to try and help people, you know, dealing with, this would be more in the mental health realm, but to help people dealing with, you know, something like anxiety um, to, see some of the adaptive qualities of it, not just the, you know, really negative um, or difficult um, traits that, that may go along with it, but seeing, you know, how actually being a little bit more careful in decision-making or, um, you know, um, being, being more conscientious, um, to what to uh to tasks or to the people around you how that those can be some positives and you know that's where taking that kind of perspective to to autism as well that's where you mentioned um you know you're trying to um you're trying to equate you know having a, a brain that works a little bit differently um to being like a, an x-men character you know and and of course um there's so much value to having neurodiversity and, and different perspectives and, and life experiences and ways of thinking. And um, so, so yeah, really uh, compelling stuff. Well, thank you so much for your uh, compliments on that. Um, and I, I really have appreciated your articles that you've shared with us as an audience um, I guess I would consider myself a listener too, if I really was honest. So thank you so much. <laughs> My pleasure.
All right. So um, my first story is what I like to call about the autistic dancer. Um, so I, I like to go into two stories that relate to creativity and autism. And um, the first story is about ballet and a ballet dancer. So earlier in the year in Dance Magazine, in an article titled Ballet Could Be a Home for Autistic Dancers Like Me, Emily DeMeo Newton illustrates how ballet is a natural fit for dancers with autism, but also she talks about the major improvements that could be made to help people like her pursue it as a career. In the article, she writes about how she had discovered her autism diagnosis a few months prior at age 25, but was certain that her love for her ballet classes solidified an autism diagnosis even before she got the official word. She loved the highly structured and nuanced expression of group dynamics. Ballet relies a lot on parallel play, where individuals dance parallel to one another, but not interlocked in social engagement and interaction. The same formalization and high structurization, however, also lends itself to uniformity and rigidity in what one wears, what one hears, and the social environments one must get used to. This type of environment is not entirely welcoming to individuals with sensory processing disorders, and people who participate in self-stimulatory behaviors are stimming, which is very common in the autism community. Because of these difficulties, while Miss Newton loves ballet, she could never participate in it as a career and is using the article to stimulate discussion on how the art form can create a more welcoming environment for dancers with autism. So here's my question for you, and I know this is a mouthful. Nate, I know that we both have never taken ballet classes. Maybe <laughs> you have since you have a much more athletic body than I do. Dancing is an art form and perhaps a form of creative expression. For example, I would freak dance in the past because I just wanted to dance the way I felt like I wanted to dance. Um, I'm kind of curious if you uh, looked at the website that I uh, sent you that promotes inclusivity in ballet, which is called balletforallkids.com. And if you have, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, well, first of all, I guess I better get the first question out of the way, which is, uh, you know, hey, it's, uh, hey, don't assume that uh, I've never taken a ballet class before. Um, but that is, in fact, the truth. Um, <laughs> I have not partaken in it, um, but I can definitely appreciate the, the beauty um, and its, its form of art that's displayed. And I thought that was a, a great um, perspective that Miss Newton had on, you know, that particular form of dance and, you know, that type of mentality um, or culture can be applied to so many different um, forms of art and sport um, where they can seem to be a little bit exclusive, maybe based on you know, needing to have a certain body type or having, you know, certain baseline abilities. And um, I did get a chance, I did get a chance to check out the website. Um, before I share my thoughts on that, uh, <laughs> I will say that, so I, I think freak dance is a, a very 
a very good way to describe, um, you know, the type of dancing that, that Merrick, you and I are probably capable of, but, um, Hey, it's good to be reckless, uh, on the dance floor to some degree, just, you know, there's, there's no, there's no right or wrong answers. Um, when it comes to the creative arts is one thing I'm learning today, but, um, certainly some, some answers look a little bit, bit better than others. But anyways, I did get a chance to check out the site and I love the mission um, to, try to, to try to make ballet inclusive to um, people with all kinds of background abilities, even um, individuals that have disabilities that may, might prevent them from doing ballet in a traditional sense. I think it's a, you know, it's a wonderful extension of the opportunity uh, to people that might otherwise not be um, welcomed in, in certain ballet classes. You know, um, I take a look at, you know, what, what we do at the foundation as far as uh, providing tennis and golf classes. And in many ways, you could look at these sports as you know, a little bit exclusive and that a person needs to have um, a cert certain baseline athletic skills or they need to have the equipment necessary to partake in this. And I think it's fantastic that at the Ells for Autism Foundation, we, you know, we try to develop um, the tennis and golf lessons in a way that that is accessible and um, really gives people of any abilities the opportunity to take part in, in that case, it's a sport, but, you know, many people have more of a proclivity for the arts or for dancing. And, you know, those, those opportunities shouldn't be denied uh, to anyone. You know, there's, uh, I was watching the movie Ratatouille the other night and, uh, one of my favorite quotes from that movie is uh, that anyone can cook. And so I think that that could be applied to really any hobby, uh, any art, any sport is that, um, you know, just cause it's, it's done in a different or non-traditional way um, doesn't mean that a person's not getting so much fulfillment out of it and, and really getting into a flow state mentally while they do it. I appreciate um, your answer, and I will say, though, that anyone can cook, but can anyone burn the, uh, their apartment down by cooking? I'm sure I can. <laughs> I, I can make maybe a five-alarm fire in my apartment by just cooking uh, a sandwich. Well, um, you know, the quote ends at anyone can cook uh it doesn't extend to cook well or cook successfully <laughs> <laughs> yeah anyone can cook and you know if it tastes like trash you know still anyone can cook one man's trash is another man's treasure well i i appreciate that maybe you can come and try uh my baked cd surprise which uh, i will have to say is a, a very, very, very acquired taste. How, how about we make a home run frozen pizza instead? Uh, uh, yeah. 
I'll try to find a way to butcher that up too. That's probably better uh, aligns with with our cooking abilities, both of us. Yeah, definitely. So um, now on to my second article. Um, in an article published on May 11th, 2022 on the East Lothian Courier, uh, new wave pioneer Gary Newman, most known for the song Cars in the States, talks openly about his Asperger's syndrome diagnosis. He mentions about how some people may see only the negative about Asperger's. He was put on medications as a teenager due to it, but he sees a lot of positives about it. In fact, he believes that he wouldn't have his career without it. He sees this Asperger's as giving him determination, per perseverance, drive, focus to detail, even if it also brings him awkwardness in conversation and in company. He also mentions about how the special interest facet is vital and needed in the business he is in. He lastly remarks that he sees the world slightly differently and it makes him react to things slightly differently. There is also the subject of his marriage with Gemma O'Neill, which is coming close to 30 years. Longer than many neurotypical marriages, if I may be blunt. Now, he credits her for helping him understand the problems that his diagnosis may cause in social situations with kindness and empathy. All in all, it is a short but fantastic interview for a man who helped create the 80s musical landscape. Nate, another question out of left field, but I have a feeling I asked you this before. But what has been your experience regarding music, i.e. playing musical instruments and singing? Yeah, I appreciate the question. I, I want to say that um, as an adult, um, actually one of, my, one of my big wishes in life is that I had spent more time learning music because I'm a huge music fanatic. I listen to music every day for probably at least 30 minutes. And I go to concerts all the time. I love many different types of music, including uh, rock and roll, including jazz, classical pieces, um, just about everything except the country rap hybrid. I haven't yet gotten on board with that, um, but I will say, I did not study music when I was a child. Um, my one chance of exposure to music was when I was six in sixth grade and they started a music program at our school and every student had the opportunity to choose an instrument of their choice. And I chose violin because I loved the way that it sounded. Uh, that was mainly the reason behind it. Unfortunately, uh, my sixth grade self was so very concerned with um, playing basketball and tennis. And because of that, I did not keep up with the practicing and I eventually stopped playing after, I think it was only a month that I lasted. So um, one thing that, yeah, I would say I really do wish that I learned music when I was younger. I've tried to pick up guitar a couple times since then. And who knows, maybe I'll set a goal for this summer to um, really become proficient in playing or at least passable. But yeah, that's pretty much 
my experience? Can I, uh, can I uh, reverse this one over to you, Merrick? Can I ask you about to, to share some of your music experience with the audience? Well, I will say that hundreds of cover bands are crying right now because you aren't giving them uh, instrument or you aren't singing with them. <laughs> I'm sure that that also like 50 journey tribute bands are waiting for you to be out there singing uh what what is it um open arms yeah <laughs> um but as for me um that has also been a regret of mine is that I just never really had the discipline to learn a musical instrument the closest musical instrument I could probably learn is the piano or the keyboard. Um, I also didn't do too badly when playing a little bit of the bass, but um, you would expect me to, who is so entrenched into music, to, to be uh, talented or proficient in at least one instrument. Um, I will say when I took guitar in college, um, that was one of the hardest things that I had done. And I was extremely surprised at how tough it was to learn guitar. Um, yeah. And it wasn't the teacher's fault at all. It's just that for some reason, I cannot really play the guitar. Um, when I was taking a guitar class in high school, I was spending a lot more time being creative with the way the guitar was than actually, you know, really playing the guitar which uh, I guess was kind of comparable to the people who were sitting near me doing these impromptu jam sessions, which sounded like, uh, I don't know if any of you listeners have heard Metal Machine Music by Lou Reed, um, but it's very, very close to that kind of sound. Um, so it's, I, I will have to say though, um, I've been singing for years um, and I've uh, I actually thought of myself for a while as maybe being a lead singer in a band or something like that, like lead singer songwriter. Um, and it was all a dream for me because I thought I sounded great until I went to this Beatles fest in New Jersey um, and we were all allowed to go into a booth and to record our lead vocal over a karaoke version of Twist and Shout. And I thought I did a great job at the song until I went into the booth. I completely, you know, mauled the song. And then once the tape was given back to me and I heard myself sing, I was completely disgusted. And I realized from there that there was no way that I could be the lead singer in a band because the way I heard myself sing is not the same as hearing myself sing taped and played back to me. So, but even so though, I still, when I get very bored, I sing to myself. When I get very tired, I sing to myself because I find that it really, really helps me in both situations. Um, I have a very deep voice. I have a very deep baritone um, if I ever sing. And that makes it a little bit difficult to try to maneuver around um, the song space that, that we have in this world. 
So, um, and maybe also a little bit of a monotonal kind of sound. So, you know, it's, it's not like I can sing something and all of a sudden the birds will sing, uh, cheer will go into the world and you will start seeing rainbows everywhere. That hasn't exactly been my experience, but, but I have sung for the public before. I was in chorus for years, um, you know, and I think overall, when you take everything away, the one thing that mankind has got is still the ability to sing, even if one cannot sing real well. Um, what is odd is that I'm one of those individuals who cannot snap his fingers or whistle. So I cannot even do that. So if you want some kind of a barbershop quartet combo with uh, snapping and whistling, I cannot do that. I can just be in the back and go, oh, 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 and that can be it. So <laughs> that's been pretty much my experience regarding music. I wanted to start a band in high school. I had a lot of different names for it, but I didn't have the people skills and the social skills to set up an auditorium sessions that I can find the members for my band. So I, I was kind of out when it comes to that kind of stuff. But I'm always looking for collaborators. So if you get good enough at guitar or some other instrument, then maybe we can collaborate together and dominate the world musically. I like the sound of that. Maybe we can write our own intro song. Yeah, I, I won't have to use the song that I already co-wrote um, <laughs> that we play at the beginning of each uh, episode and the song that I co-wrote for the ending. Instead, uh, I can have an, another collaborator and it would fit a lot more appropriately to uh, these episodes because it's the two of us collaborating on a song, on two songs. I have to say one more thing, though. I think, Merrick, I've heard you sing before, and you're very good. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's it's first nature for a lot of people to be a harsh critic uh, of their artistic abilities, whether it's dancing, singing, whatever it may be. And, um, you know, just like we talked about how differences are valuable um, in terms of neurodiversity, I would argue that differences are also valuable in the music world. Um, you look at a singer like Jim Morrison of The Doors compared to um, someone like John Bon Jovi, and you've got two completely different um, um, styles of singing. But I, I would have to say that a better comparison would be Jim Morrison versus Tom Waits. That is better. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, you're talking yeah. about John Bon Jovi. That's an arena rocker. Jim Morrison could probably have rocked an arena if he lived longer. So, you know. That, that is better. But the point is uh, that different styles appeal to different people. And um, variety is, is always a good thing. Well, I, I appreciate that. I didn't realize that there was value in my voice um i'll uh 
I'll have you become president of my fan club and you can start sending out emails and fanzines about me and maybe Whoa. we can cultivate a following. <laughs> I'm too old to be a teen idol though. So uh, I won't be like Aaron Carter or, or what, it, or Justin Timberlake. Instead I'll be a uh, uh, old, uh, old teen idol. <laughs> the, the teen idol for the thirties. Well, you, you heard it here first, folks. We'll see when the album drops. And uh, thanks for listening, plonk. as always. Yeah, the album will drop, plonk. It will collapse everything. All right. So, um, yeah, as, as, you, as uh, we would always say, um, before we go, we want to thank the Foundation for believing in us to be able to do a podcast for any willing listeners. And because of that, we will be seeing you again in June with some more coverage on us and the autistic community in general. Now, how do we end this, like usual? Four. I wish that I could fly so high, oh, like a butterfly. I fly into the air so high, oh, like a butterfly. A moth is a butterfly without any colors, but what's beautiful is what's inside. Maybe a moth is just a butterfly trying to hide. Well, I'm just a caterpillar crawling around, knowledge in my head, but my feet on the ground. Soon I'll be like an angel in the sky, like a butterfly. I wish that I could fly so high, oh, like a butterfly. I'll fly into the air so high, oh, like a butterfly. Like a bird, I was meant to soar. I will fly through the sunlight and even when it pours, you can't stop me when I get a hold of the wind. In the future, your eyes will light up to think that I was once a poor cat and pup. We'll grow up and take to the sky like a flock of butterflies. I wish I could fly so high, oh, like a butterfly. I'm flying to the air. So high, just like a butterfly. Fly, cause I'm a butterfly I'm flying through the
so high. 